0: Good, good afternoon. Um, welcome to this afternoon's panel on uh, foreign policy priorities for the next administration. Um, my name is Arshad Mohammed. I cover U.S. foreign policy for Reuters from a base at the State Department. Can you not hear me, sir? Okay. If we can adjust the volume a little bit so everybody can hear me and I don't have to yell. Um, I'm Arshad Mohammed, I cover foreign policy for Reuters from a base at the State Department. Um, delighted to have four distinguished uh, people here on the panel today uh, to join us. Uh, to my right is Paula Dobriansky, former Under Secretary of State for Democracy and Global Affairs, who's now a senior fellow at Harvard Belfer Center. Um, to my left is uh, Derek Chalet, former Assistant Secretary of State, uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense, excuse me for International Security Affairs at the Pentagon, um, who is now at the German Marshall Fund. To his left, we have uh, Mackenzie Eaglin, who is at the American Enterprise Institute and has earlier worked as a Hill staffer and uh, at DOD. And on the far side, we have uh, Dan Kurtz-Fielen, who is uh, at the New America Foundation and who was previously uh, uh, at the State Department. One of the sorrows of being, a, one of the sad of being a State Department correspondent is that you learn very quickly that asking hypothetical questions doesn't get you very far. Today's the beauty of today's panel, from my point of view, is that it is entirely hypothetical, <laughs> and we're going to pretend, for the purposes of the first uh, subject, which is Syria, let's pretend that we are 14 months and four days from today. Uh, The Paris attacks have just occurred a few days ago, Um, and my opening question, which I'd like to address to you, uh, Paula, is what action should the United States take in response to uh, the attacks in Paris? And specifically, should the new US president insert uh, ground troops or special operations forces beyond the 50 that uh, President Obama authorized in his last months uh, into Syria as part of a response.
1: Well, first, thank you and also thank CSIS for this panel. So we are, you said, 14 months ahead and this happens. My answer is unequivocally that yes, we should be uh, upping that number of our presence on the ground. Uh, but let me take it a step back, because I think that the question, it's a very specific one, but I think there are some important issues here for a future administration that need to be put on the table. The first being that it is absolutely essential to have a strategy. A strategy in defeating ISIS, a strategy in the dealing with the issue of Syria, but also, I would say, as much as it's also interwoven, a strategy for dealing with the Middle East at large. It is crucial not to have a reactive, ad hoc approach. I think having an architecture, a framework for action can matter greatly. So in that context, the military component would certainly be one of those components but let me mention a second one, having been from the State Department, and that is, I think that also what is essential, and I think that we have not kept up our network and infrastructure in and throughout the Middle East at large. The kinds of relationships that we have had economically, politically, and even militarily with many of the countries. That matters because they look to the United States and what will be the US commitment. If we're hesitant, if we are not uh, putting forth a clear strategy of which they are engaged, of which we are leading as part of a coalition with this group, uh, of those who have a clear stake in the region, um, then they question, what will (laughs) next happen on the ground? In other words, we're not reassuring our allies and friends and we aren't deterring our
0: foes. One, one quick question, if I may, um, and then I'll turn to you, uh, Derek. Um, beyond uh, a greater military involvement in Syria, more than 50 Special Operations Forces, I guess uh, there are two questions. One, how, what would be the number that you would imagine uh, putting in, and then secondly, beyond a greater military emphasis and better relationships in the Middle East, what are the other elements of that strategy? Well, there
1: there are other elements that I could have mentioned. Mm -hmm. I think the importance of intelligence sharing, uh, definitely. Here also, uh, uh, certainly there has been the issue of the invocation because of France, an invocation of Article 5. I think that's crucial. As some of you may recall, there was an invocation of Article 5 when the United States was attacked. Um, that matters greatly in terms of a show of force, political force, not just military force and solidarity in a war uh, against uh, such uh, extremism. Um, As for, so intelligence sharing, I mentioned the political relationship. Also, uh, as part of this too, is the importance of um, the kinds of programs that we have, which are counter radicalization programs. There have been a number of countries such as Indonesia and Morocco that more broadly, this goes more broadly, Mm -hmm. uh, have uh, advanced uh, which try to provide for education, for assistance, uh, for those that are being attracted into this radicalization. Mm I think that we should also be supportive of those efforts as well.
0: I'm going to come back to you. And as for number of a number, troops, yeah. I was
1: going to say, as for a number, yeah. I'm not a military person, and yeah. I do think that it's important to engage our military and uh, to hear their specific uh, recommendations toward that end. You know already, people like uh, uh, David Petraeus, he already had called for a no-fly zone. Uh, also for the establishment of safe havens. I didn't mention those, but those are all part of a a package here. I wanted to mention, though, the broad piece. Okay,
0: thank you. Derek, you are a DOD guy, or you were. Um, What's your answer? What policies should the new president uh, pursue, and what kinds of numbers do you imagine?
2: Well, first, I also want to add my thanks for everyone for being here. Uh, These are important issues, and I'm glad to see such a great showing uh, to talk about them. My, my only hesitation of being part of this panel is that we're the warm-up act for Henry Kissinger. Uh, so do our best. Uh, and um, I, really, I want to associate myself with a lot of what Paula said. And it may surprise some of you knowing where we're coming from. But I agree that, that there needs to be a comprehensive strategy. I agree that the military piece of it is extremely important, but not the only part of that strategy. I would argue that we have a strategy. And and we I meaning the current administration has a strategy in uh, dealing with this problem. We can argue on the intensity in which we're pursuing various lines of that strategy, whether we're putting in enough military resources, whether the balance between what we're doing militarily and in a non-military means, diplomatic intelligence, is right, uh, whether we're getting all we can get out of our allies. Uh, those are all questions that. During my time in government, we debated endlessly within the Situation Room, and those are all questions that the next president, whoever he or she is, is gonna have to confront on their first day in office. More specifically, on the military side, I think, as the administration's made clear, we can look, and we should look, at intensifying uh, our military activity, whether it's our direct US action in airstrikes. We've seen, in the last 24 hours, an intensification of US alongside the French uh, in Raqqa whether it's our role on the ground and whether we should add to the 50 or so soft special operators that are on the ground in Syria. That will entail some risk, and, it's, and the way I think of it, it's all about risk management. I mean, we, could, we can dial up that number. We will entail risk in terms of our own forces. We may entail some risk in terms of the forces on the ground that we choose to work with. In other words, they wouldn't necessarily be some of the cleanest folks. Uh, and we could take a risk, greater risk in terms of the targeting that we do, and be willing to accept uh, greater civilian casualties in the event that we decide to, to strike at targets in which uh, there are civilians around. I mean, those are risks that any president are going to have to confront when they're in office. Uh, I, I would say that, that we've, the administration has worked very hard to try to shore up our security alliances in the region. I would argue that despite some honest disagreements the United States has had with some regional partners about uh, the way to go about handling the Iran nuclear program, for example, uh, our military-to-military relationships in the region are quite strong. The force posture for the United States is is quite uh, robust, and, and that's that's been a difficult thing to pull off from a force uh, management point of view, from a budget point of view, as we have withdrawn from Iraq and taken out that 100,000-plus footprint out of Iraq to maintain that U.S. force posture is something that's taken a lot of work, and I think the next president absolutely needs to maintain that moving forward.
0: It sounds to me as if both of you um, are not, however, interested in looking at the possibility of large numbers of actual ground troops. Is it correct to say that you're both looking just at an increase in Special Operations Forces? Personally, I
2: associate myself with the comments that Secretary Gates made uh, when, as he was leaving office that anyone who envisions a large land war in that part of the world needs to have their head examined.
3: Do you, uh, I, do you agree? I
2: think that we should use the kind
1: of military tools, instruments, and uh, Derek mentioned several, that are the most effective, that are targeted. I think that should also be combined with joining forces with uh, the uh, Peshmerga, uh, Kurdish Peshmerga, with the Iraqi security forces, with the others who, and the Syrian rebel
2: forces, who can also add on to our uh, force and effort. Could I just have one comment and then one specific on the number? Remember, at the end of last week, coinciding with the awful attacks in Paris, we saw some examples militarily of some successes. Cooperation with the Kurds in Iraq in, in getting back to Sinjar Road and uh, US direct action uh, against one of the uh, ISIS leaders, uh, the so-called Jihad, John. Um, in terms of numbers and soft on the ground, it seems to me, and I absolutely agree with Paula, you're gonna defer to the operators in the field, but the band could be anywhere from the 50 we've got now to the roughly 2,500 that we're looking to sustain in Afghanistan in a counter-terrorism mission for many, many years to come, even after our overall number comes down
1: but may I just add, on the diplomatic note, I have to differ with Derek, and the reason why is because when I look at the crisis from the beginning, there were missed opportunities, there were mixed signals, which had a diplomatic impact, um, as we know, and that's why I mentioned a strategy. If you take an approach of, as we know, the infamous drawing a red line, and then you don't go cross over into it, then your credibility is diminished. And so that's why I'm saying going forward and looking, which is the issue of this panel for the administration going forward, I do think that it's not just only about the strategy in Syria itself and also having a strategy in defeating ISIS, but it is very broadly about all of our relationships with the Middle East at large, which is absolutely crucial to this issue.
0: I'd I'd like to shift to talk uh, about a related issue. Um, When one is thinking about ways to prevent uh, attacks on the United States or attacks on its allies, as we just saw in France, Uh, surely one has to think about the the ideological battle. Um, Are there, and Dan, if I might go to you on this, are there ideological theological responses to, uh, for want of a better term, militant Islam. What can the United States do, and what partners might it have in winning uh, the battle of ideas?
4: Sure, well, you know, this is something that we have all been talking about for more than a decade now. And I think it's a little bit dispiriting for everyone who's been involved that we have not figured out the formula more successfully than we have. All of that said, I think we've learned quite a bit about what does not work. And you know, I would uh, second Secretary Clinton's reference to George W. Bush in this regard. And we, we should really defer to the way moderates in the region talk about the things they need, the things they need from us, the ways we can support them in fighting this ideological battle rather than reverting to some of the clash of civilizations rhetoric that we have seen on the campaign trail in, in recent years. You know, I would also go beyond just the, the global CV piece to look at the law enforcement and intelligence pieces here at home. And one of the great advantages we have in the US, as compared to Europe, is the way that we have integrated Muslim American communities, especially in the law enforcement advantages that has. So I would be very, very um, careful not to do anything that would compromise that advantage as we work to disrupt any plot that might, might be threatening us here at home.
0: As you, as you point out, I mean, it, we're 14 years from 9-11, and as your answer suggested, nobody's really come up with a particularly good answer on the ideological or theological front. Um, uh, or at least many people would see it that way. Mackenzie, I know you're more of a a Pentagon person but um, do you have, surely the U.S. military has given a lot of thought to this question of trying to drain the motivation uh, of people who wish to launch attacks on the United States. How, How does, can we do, can the U.S. government do that? How would you do that?
5: Well, it's often like the U.S.'s role in NATO. I think the military feels like that they are always by function of size and just sheer budget. Of course, the long pole and the tent. So they're so often called upon to step up where other agencies may not have the manpower or the ability to ask civilians to mobilize in support of larger efforts that have to do with security. Uh, so again, uh, to the to the last point, I think there's been a lot learned what where the limits of the military capability mm-hmm. are as well as what can be done. But I think the Defense Department has to wrestle with the, the sh- conclusion that they're going to be asked to play a role in defeating the ideology, not just uh, the intelligence support and of course the actual degrading and defeating if that's the ultimate goal of Islamic State and, and potentially other terrorist groups as well. And that's the other challenge, right? It's the capacity challenge to be spread across Boko Haram, ISI, Al-Shabaab, Islamic State. Uh, it's it's not going to be enough to just, reply, just rely on special operations forces and so, the Defense Department again here is struggling with an army that's shrinking pretty dramatically relative to its um, post 9-11 buildup. But your, only, your special forces, their resupply, their sustainment, their logistics, they're only as good as the regular military that supports them. They're, they may be a block away or just over the border, but they're always there to help feed them, give them extra equipment, get them to the wherever they need to go. Uh, so there's a, there's a wider discussion here about what's happened over the not just the last 15 years, which has really, I think, not just strained the military, but had, as an institution, has had them focus on one particular type of problem and challenge to solve, and now to look uh, broader across the, the, the global enterprise. If you listen to Pentagon on People, they'll tell you Islamic State is the most immediate threat, but Russia is the most dangerous. So then, of course, you have to balance terrorism and its various players and actors with the potential return of near peer and near state competitors. And so this ideology, defeating this ideology component will be a part and defense, the Defense Department will have to play a role in that. Um, but it's gonna have to be balanced. And I think there's gonna have to be a wider adult conversation about will there ever be a truly whole of government effort? Because if you ask people depending on them, they'll say it's never coming that day. The Calvary's not coming. Mm-hmm. And if it's not, what are the limits of the Defense Department in that regard?
0: To turn to to Russia and Ukraine for a moment, Um, uh, Derek, are there any policies uh, you think that the US government can pursue that could uh, reverse Russia's annexation of Crimea, diminish uh, what the US government regards as Russian blatant interference in eastern Ukraine? and in looking at that, could you address two things: Should the United States arm Ukraine, which it has hitherto not been willing to do, and should the United States, uh, which, as Mackenzie said, needs to mili- you know, maintain a military to deter pure uh, states, should the United States intervene directly in Ukraine if uh, there were to be uh, more direct Russian aggression on that country
2: uh- well, let me try to get at answering those questions by starting with picking up on something McKinsey mentioned, which is this question of balance. <laughs> uh, one of the, the, the big questions the next president will have to confront is European force posture. Of course, starting with the end of the Cold War, through the Bush years, Bush 43 years, through the Obama years, um, saw a drawdown in US forces in Europe. And in the last several years, since, since Ukraine, we've seen some surge back. That has been, by definition, a temporary uh, set of measures, temporary in terms of uh, our forces are just rotating through. It's a persistent rotational, but, uh, and also in terms of the funding that backs that up. So we have a question, the question we will confront as a country, the NATO alliance will confront as an alliance, is do we permanently station uh, forces in the Baltics and and Poland in in particular? Mm -hmm. Uh, That's gonna be a big budget issue. It's gonna be a big uh, force planning issue. I think right now we've shown correctly that we are ma- willing to have forces in the region on a rotational basis. And to be honest, I'm, I want to leave it to the budgeteers on whether it makes more sense to allow that to continue or whether we want to permanently station, but I think there's no question that we want to have a presence. And the debate will not be about whether we maintain a presence, but how we do that. On the issue of assistance to Ukraine, personally, I've been for lethal assistance for Ukraine, although I have always looked at it uh, within, a, within the context in which we considered it in the administration, which is, let's not pretend that this is gonna be the game changer in any sort of conflict with Russia. The types of assistance we were considering uh, would have made a modest difference in, in the capabilities of the Ukrainian forces, but it would not had, had turned the tide immediately. What matters much more, in my view, is what we are in fact doing, and we could be doing more of that, and the Europeans could be doing more of that, which is training the Ukrainian armed forces, making sure that they are more professional and capable and less corrupt. Uh, They have been asking for that help. We've been trying to give that help. Just two weeks ago, we graduated the first class of 300 uh, uh, Ukrainian armed forces that were trained by the United States over three months. So that's an area where I think the US and Europe disagree over the question of lethal assistance. If a new president comes in and and decides to do lethal, we can at least agree with the Europeans that we need to help work together to train the Ukrainians. Uh, Whether or not we can, Reverse what Russia has done. I think first thing we're trying to stop to make sure Russia doesn't go any further. As you know, there's a Minsk process. It's more of a diplomatic process to try to get Russia uh, to at least uh, end it. Will certainly end its support for the opposition within Eastern Europe, U- Ukraine, but then over time reverse uh, uh, its its uh, its activities there. With Crimea, I think that's something we are going to have that we, we the next president will have to put together, design a play to figure out. Uh, what we're going to do to reverse that there's no question the sanctions would stay on place and stay in place until uh russia's out of crimea but coming up with a with a with a diplomatic plan that we think is achievable what i think one of the top first orders of business with ukraine uh, in terms of russia and crimea
0: Paula do you uh, do you think there's a way to reverse uh, russia's annexation of ukraine and and secondly um should the united states uh, provide lethal assistance to uh, U- Ukraine? And should U.S. troops go into Ukraine if Russian forces were to go in in large measure?
1: Right. Well, uh, the three, uh, three questions you posed on, on the first, in terms of, of uh, deterring Russia and reversing course, I think that uh, first, the costs to Russia have to be high in order to deter Russia from its current course of action. So the economic sanctions matter greatly, as we know. Russia's uh, uh, economy is in shambles. The ruble is in half. Capital flight in 2014 was over uh, some billions of, of dollars. Specifically, consistency of approach and unity of purpose in maintaining a high cost I believe can have an impact in terms of Russia's course of action. However, let me add, to date the sanctions have been very targeted, but have not been the sanctions that have really um, impacted uh, severely uh, Russia. Uh, I will give one for example: uh, the West and the United States provides assistance to the antiquated refineries that matters greatly, certainly in terms of Russia's own economy. That is a choke point, and a point which can certainly have a very, very serious impact. So I think that uh, going forward, I think we have to have unity, consistency of purpose, the costs of what we do have to be high in order to deter Russia. Let me mention though in that boat, because Mm -hmm. it's a broad question, I think also we have to look at what we're doing vis-a-vis Ukraine. Ukraine is looking to the United States, not only for lethal assistance, and my answer to that is yes, we should equip Ukraine and enable them to defend themselves. But also, I think it's important to add, they are also economically stressed and strangulated. And what we do economically in terms of the debt rescheduling uh, is quite crucial. Larry Summers, and I pick out especially Larry Summers, wrote a piece months ago in the Financial Times where he very specifically argued that what we do economically on this debt rescheduling can actually assist Ukraine in springboarding. It's fighting a war on its eastern front, and how does it stabilize itself? So that area matters greatly in terms of deterring or pulling back The Minsk Accords, I I think, and I would like to see U.S. involvement in that. We've had a transatlantic stake, and in terms of uh, Europe, whole and free, and at peace, and the security, and in that sense, diplomatically, I believe we have a stake. And let me just add uh, two other pieces in this mix. Uh, On the question about the troop, the forward permanent troop deployment. Uh, The new president of Warsaw has already declared that at next year's Warsaw NATO summit, that Poland will advance an agenda calling for such a permanent presence. I think you're going to find, uh, as uh, I think Derek was stating, that it's a a question of not if, but it's a question of how this shakes down in terms of US presence
0: and involvement. A follow-up for both of you, if I may. Do you, do you really think economic sanctions and permanent uh, basing of US forces in additional parts of Europe in the Baltics and Poland are going to reverse uh, the annexation of Crimea
1: I think when I look back to the position that we had taken during the Cold War on our non-recognition policy towards the Baltic states Latvia Lithuania and Estonia there were those who doubted the change a non-recognition policy consistency of purpose Backed by not only economic strength but also military unity, um, I think can have, in the longer term, an impact.
4: You agree, Derek?
0: I do. Yep. I do. Why don't we turn, Dan? Did you want to? Can, China, can I please? just
4: broad, broaden the point that Paula made about supporting Ukraine? Mm-hmm. I think if we look at the long-term strategic dimension of this, it's not just about this set of moves that's going to play out on Eastern Ukraine, but it's about the long-term success of Ukraine okay. as a model that provides a really strong counterpoint to Putin. And it's not just that there's a, a security assistance piece to what we can do, there's an economic assistance piece to what we can do, but really bringing all of our government resources to bear and our societal resources to bear on creating a Ukraine that is a model of a successful market democracy that really disproves the kind of ideology that Putin is trying to uh, enforce around the borders of Russia. You know, and, and I think that in the next, the next administration is gonna be the key question. That we're going to face it's not going to be the set of tactical moves but it's about sustained support to ukraine across the whole of government and and the second thing i would add to the extent that we can we fail to maintain transatlantic unity on this all of this is going to be much harder so the more we can do to buck up europe's resolve and then also build on the things this administration has done to diversify european energy resources so that European governments are, are in a position to stand strong against Russia. I think those for the next administration will be probably two of the key uh, strategic priorities. Mm-hmm.
0: One strategic priority that I think everybody would agree the next administration is going to have is, is how to deal with China. Uh, Mackenzie, if I might ask you, um, do you foresee the so-called pivot or rebalancing, to use its rebranded term, to Asia will continue in new administration? And how do you do that? without raising your defense budget?
5: So, conceptually, I think there's bipartisan support for an increased national attention on the Asia Pacific for a variety of reasons, maybe different, but still a consensus exists. We saw it at the tail end of the last Bush administration in their defense planning documents and strategy documents moving in this direction, and then we saw uh, two blue ribbon panels, a la the National Defense Panel, also support it. So yes, I actually think uh, it, it's it's a sound policy direction. Of course, it cannot be a zero-sum effort. I think all US defense planning has been upended now with the fundamental shift in Europe. Because our force planning and what how, what we size the military to do, and what we ask them to do, and why we make them look the way they do, it's all fundamentally shaped around the threats and and challenges they're going to have to confront or the peacetime we want them to keep. Europe as a net security provider is no longer an assumption that's a given. And that's been an assumption and a reality in many cases because of course the US helped create that under presence of both political parties. It's been a luxury that I don't know that we'll be able to enjoy 14 months and four days from now. Well, that's gonna consume a lot of bandwidth and effort from, from the Defense Department. The Middle East will continue to be an area that is, uh, can, can become all-consuming, even when we have a light touch or a light footprint, uh, and we're not engaged in an all-out conflict of the Iraq size. So between those three theaters, Asia-Pacific, Middle East broadly, and Europe, it's, it's a military stretch to do any of them well. So do I think the pivot is, is solid and has support? I think it does, it's not, so long as it's not a zero-sum effort. It can't be at the expense of these other priorities. Uh, Can you do it without raising the defense budget? It's all about, I guess, the politics of of defense spending, (coughs) perhaps, but then you have to change how you spend defense dollars, and that doesn't seem to be something Congress wants to consider as as well. So it's gonna either be given more money or or make a lot of people very unhappy, whether that's civilian contractors, depot workers, uh, bases with units that go away, outright base closures, the kinds of things that make a lot of people with constituencies very unhappy in many cases, rightfully so.
0: Derek, what's your what's your view on that? And, and how do you pay for it if you're going to have to raise, uh, if, if it's going to be impossible or very difficult, as Mackenzie suggests, to change the way you spend the money, how do you get more money, revenues or yeah, entitlement reform I, or magic? Or yeah, what? yeah.
2: Uh, but look, I totally agree with Mackenzie's analysis. I think the, the rebalance uh, to Asia is, is one of the policy moves of the last seven years. that has wide bipartisan support. I expect, uh, barring some unforeseen outcome in either of the primaries, that, that uh, the president, Republican Democratic president, will continue to implement the rebalance. The challenge, of course, will be how. And, and this gets back to actually the Middle East conversation we were having uh, at the outset. Uh, the word balance has been used several times with this panel, another word is, is sustainable. And in order to have a successful strategy, you need something that's balanced and sustainable. Because right now, the United States currently confronts a challenge in the three major strategic arenas in which we play, Europe, the Middle East, and Asia, of reassurance. And the answer from all of those allies is more. They want more, they want more US posture, they want more of our resources, they want more of our diplomatic time of intention, they want more of our leadership. And this administration has been trying to set out a course where we don't get out of balance in any particular place. We have to think very long and hard about uh, military engagement in the Middle East for the precise reason that it would make it harder from a resource perspective, from a bandwidth (laughs) perspective, uh, to execute long-term strategic moves like the rebalance, if we're bogged down in another war in the Middle East. But at the same time, we can't ignore problems of the Middle East. So one can argue that the current administration has gotten it all wrong, and it, and it, has, it's, it doesn't have the priorities uh, accurately reflected, and it's not putting enough resources into each of these challenges, but the next president's gonna confront all these problems on their plate at the same time, and they're gonna have to figure out, A, what to do about it, and B, how to pay for it. Now, look, how to, how to pay for it, I'm not a domestic policy expert. Our economy uh, looks a lot better today than it did in 2008, that's for sure. It's still huge problems in our economy, huge inequities in our economy. Uh, but we're in a much better shape economically than many of our peer partners, all of our peer partners from around the world, in Europe or Asia, uh, or the Middle East, certainly. Um, so where we get more money, I think it, it's hard to see actually how we do this without a defense budget that goes up. The sequester was, was hugely damaging to U.S. defense planning, to our budget. Uh, that was not something this administration sought for sure. Uh, so we, it's good that we got two years of, of breathing space, but we got that cannot continue uh, into the next administration. And I think we have to ask very hard questions about increasing the defense budget,
0: to so how do you? I mean, just off the top of your head, and I know you're not a domestic policy guy, but revenues. Uh, look, your, I'm. Cuts hey, I'm a
2: Democrat. I'm comfortable with revenues.
0: Mm. <laughs>
5: <laughs> Can I quickly. Please. I will just say there's politics and there's math. There's no magic sauce here. So I'll sure. just, just tell you the solutions, and it's basically everything, all of the above. The first thing that you need is economic growth, because defense and anything else can't increase without yeah. it, right? The entire economy needs to grow fundamentally, or you're going to have to cut defense under any scenario. Uh, but beyond that, it. It's taxes and entitlements, period, end of story, and it's just what percentage, what combination they're in. We, we, we have four major entitlements now. The interest on the debt, we will not have quantitative easing forever, mm-hmm. right? So the moment that rises, that will, that will further squeeze defense. We have 10,000 people enrolling in Medicare every single day. That number's not gonna slow down for the foreseeable future. Everything squeezes the discretionary account, whether that's defense or other federal agencies that support national security. So it is taxes and it's entitlements. Everyone's gonna have to jump off the cliff together. So if we're gonna have to tweak our grandmother's social security, we're probably gonna have to talk about tweaking veterans' benefits as well. We jump off the cliff, everybody has to take it together and it's just which combination do you want?
0: Paula, are you ready to jump off the cliff and (laughs) embrace uh, taxes and? uh...
1: I I think that the new administration is gonna have to look at this issue quite seriously because uh, now I think there are two factors. I think having a strong economy also means a strong national security, but also that has to be backed up by a strong defense. And I do think the uh, sequester was uh, damaging, Uh, but let me add something to this mix if Mm -hmm. if I can that I think also needs to be mentioned. When I think of Asia and the relationship with Asia, I think of some very strong alliances that we, we have in the region. And I also think the common interests that we also have that galvanize our strong support uh, for, for our own uh, interests in, in, in stemming the tide of aggression, stemming the tide of any kinds of actions that curb freedom of navigation, um, there are lots of factors that bring us together. Why do I mention it? I think it's important because many countries also in the region, I think are looking at ways of also how do we collectively address these issues together. I think that has to be factored into, into this mix in terms of Australia, in terms of Japan, in terms of many of the, the, the countries that we've had close relationships with in Asia and that we work with. Yep.
0: But would you raise taxes or cut entitlements or both to fund uh, defense? I,
1: I believe those things should definitely be on the table, mm-hmm. of course. Mm-hmm. We're talking about our national security here, and I think you have to look at uh, all, all of these aspects. Uh, and I think that on the Republican side, I, that is definitely the case. And also as manifested by the debate and discussion in Congress.
0: One thing I should have mentioned as a matter of housekeeping, I'm going to keep going for another five or ten minutes, then we're going to open it up for Q&A from all of you. Um, uh, there will be people who will have mics that will bring them to you. When they do so, um, please uh, uh, state your name and any affiliation that you may have. Um, and please, please, please make it a question rather than a statement. You'll you'll make my day. Um, so. One uh, matter that I have thought about, and I'd be very interested in our panelists' views on, is uh, drone warfare. Um, uh, There's no question about the efficacy of uh, targeting certain individuals with drones. There's also uh, the, the sad fact that the US government killed one of its own citizens, Warren Weinstein, in January of this year, I think demonstrates that there's not much of a question that there Will be civilians, uh, in this case, one of uh, a U.S. citizen who get killed. The, the question I'd like to ask you, Dan, is um, do you foresee the next president making, continuing to make use of drone warfare, perhaps increasing the tempo? And what, if any, is the negative impact of that if, as, as Derek said earlier, you end up having to accept? more civilian casualties? Does that hurt you in the ideological struggle?
4: Sure, well I, I think the start of the next administration regardless of who is president, will be a, a, a right moment for a kind of strategic reevaluation of the drone program. Um, my view is that whoever makes that, that strategic evaluation, whether that's a Democrat or a Republican, we will continue using drones uh, in many of the ways we have been using them over the past, the past decade and more. I think where we'll see changes, and this is very much in line with things the president has said, but we are still in the process of of implementing um, over the last couple of years since his uh, presidential directive in in May 2013, I believe, is looking at ways where we can increase transparency, um, in large part by transferring authorities from from the intelligence community to the Department of Defense, um, ways we can improve accountability, ways we can improve the public diplomacy around drone strikes. um, And that's going to mean having very hard conversations with some of our partners who are not uh, that eager to have any publicity around the drone strikes. They are cooperating um, w- with, with us to execute. But um, I think the, you know, the, the view of people in the diplomatic world is that if we can have that conversation openly, a lot of the issues that have become part of public debate uh, while the drone war has been in the shadows are going to be much easier to address. And to the extent that we can be transparent, that we can embrace accountability, that we can be... Uh, relatively straightforward about mistakes and quick to acknowledge them and we can engage more publicly in debates about civilian casualties and where we can be more transparent about the standards for signature strikes, we'll be in a much better position to engage that public debate directly and a lot of the, the strategic costs in terms of of uh, public opinion that you know, which are, which are real in certain places, will be much easier to mitigate.
0: Do you think that transparency in and of itself is going to make uh, anyone who- any foreign leader whose civilians have been killed in, say, Afghanistan, feel any better about the drone program? Well, the, or face any fewer political, sure. domestic political um, challenges? You know,
4: I, I think the view of people who are looking at some of the information that comes from the inside is that compared to civilian casualties with other airstrikes, with other kinds of kinetic action, uh, we are in a much better position to mitigate civilian casualties as much as possible with drone strikes. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that we can make that clear to people and be very public about that, We're going to help those leaders have that conversation with their people. It's it's going to be be a a constant issue, as it is with any kind of military action we undertake. But to the extent that we are able to engage in that publicly, um, I think we'll be in a much better position to address those concerns and uh, show that there are advantages to this kind of action in certain cases that um, I think can be embraced by people in the countries in question as well as people in this country.
0: Mackenzie, do you have any thoughts on the use of drones in the next administration?
5: I, I think uh, that the broad latitude this president, even the one before him, have had in, in this space, the, the, those days are coming quickly to an end, partly because of the proliferation of this, this capability and technology. It's never going to happen where, I, where the tables would be turned, I think, exactly, or at least anytime soon where you know they're buzzing over CSIS and we're all worried about who's flying it. But nonetheless, they are proliferating to the point and, and to the countries that are producing them and they are producing stealthy ones as well, they sell them to lots of other people like Iran and China and Russia. So uh, I think that there's not just more scrutiny in that regard for that reason, but it's, it's coming. So there's also uh, a challenge within the intelligence community itself. In fact, I heard it here at a CSIS roundtable the, we have an intelligence community overwhelmingly focused on finding and, and finishing targets, primarily through the use of, of drones, and has lost the ability to do other kinds of old, good old-fashioned classic intelligence gathering, and it is hurting us in other uh, challenges that we face, some that we've discussed on this panel, because counterterrorism is not the only problem that the United States confronts, of course. So for all of these reasons, it's going to be an area, I agree, under either president, uh, that's going to be up for a lot more interest and scrutiny by congress and the american people and i think that's that's the right thing to talk about
0: why don't we um, why don't we turn to, to questions now um there should be people with mics i see them over there on the left thank you very much um, why don't we start with you madam there in the dark blouse and if you would please State your name and affiliation.
2: Hi, um, I'm Tara McHelvey, I work for the BBC, and I'd like to ask you about the recent threat from ISIS. There was a videotape that was released. If you could tell, based on your experiences in government or outside of government, how you look at these threats and whether or not Washington's going to be attacked the way they say it is.
0: Derek, you want to take that?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, look, you you, you take, I I don't know specifically uh, about this threat. I've just seen a little news ticker thing about ISIS releasing a video. Clearly, you take these things very seriously, and I think John Brennan was here earlier this morning to kick off this conference, and uh, I don't know if he was asked specifically about the homeland threat, but said we should expect uh, further attacks. I mean, that's that's the nature uh, of this threat. I can say that, uh, in fact, two, two of my former colleagues, Dan Benjamin and Steve Simon today in the New York Times, had what I thought a very thoughtful piece about our preparedness here at home uh, to uh, prevent such attacks, uh, but then also the, the importance of, of maintaining vigilance. I mean, this this is a threat that is evolving, clearly. Uh, we've seen in the last, if you combine the Paris attacks with uh, what happened in Egypt, with what happened in Beirut uh, last week as well, which didn't get as much attention, we are seeing ISIS that is uh, better able to coordinate and conduct uh, such attacks outside the region. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something we clearly have to be very concerned about.
3: Mm-hmm. Yes,
0: uh, sir, in the very far back. Um, and please do also state who you might wish to address the question to if there's well, one. Hi, uh, Kevin okay. Winston, I'd just like to throw this open to anybody on the panel. Uh, could you, ass- how would you assess the rate, the level of trust the United States enjoys around the world with our allies? And how do we regain that trust uh, following a number of uh, issues over the last few years, thanks. If I could ask maybe Dan and Paula to both
4: respond Sure, to that. well, um, you know, not surprisingly, as someone who's worked in this administration, I think I would contest the, the suggested premise of your question. I think if you look at, uh, of course, that there's a very um, d- you know, diversity of views depending on where you're looking and which ally you're talking about, but if you look at public opinion, if you look at the kinds of cooperation we've had on intelligence, on security issues, I would say those alliances are very, very strong. Public opinion in uh, most of our allies and partners uh, is, is very, very favorable towards U.S. leadership. So um, I do not think there's been some precipitous collapse over the course of this administration, um, as, as I think you're suggesting. But that said, there are, looking at the Middle East or looking at other regions, a number of very, very divisive issues and those inevitably create diplomatic strain. If you look at even some of our, our very, very close friends when we talk about uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan, when we talk about various other of the choices we'll have to make in the next administration, uh, there will be friction, there will be strain, and it will fall to the work of, of our next leader and some very, very intensive diplomacy to uh, to address those directly, and I think that's something that either administration will face, and you know, you hope whoever is in Uh, both the White House and the State Department will be fairly active about doing so.
1: As I suggested in my statements, I I see the level of trust as having been impacted and our credibility as being impacted and primarily rooted in not just what we say, but our actions. I give a quick graphic one. We were talking before about Ukraine. Uh, In the case, we, along with Russia um, and uh, France, signed the Budapest Memorandum, which is to protect the territorial integrity and sovereignty of Ukraine. I remember reading, by the way, in Japanese press, interestingly enough, that was translated, the question about is there still U.S. extended deterrence in Asia? So it's not only what we say, but it's backed up by our clear actions and purpose that I think matter. And if we don't demonstrate our leadership and our action, it's called into question I
0: think we have a question from the gentleman
3: uh, there hi Nigel Sutton orbital ATK question is rather for you Mackenzie but it could open to the panel as we're starting the phase of QDR planning um, and the, the the environment with the budget and so on do you believe this will be a significant QDR, and with that, with the two MRC, do you think that will be sustainable uh, Two uh, major regional sure. conflict?
2: Mackenzie, do you want
5: to take that? Sure, I, I think every administration thinks their first defense strategy is- Significant? Significant, pivotal, <laughs> game-changing, uh, life-changing, et cetera, um, and, it, and, it, and it often is a chance to put, a, a, of course, a new president's stamp on their own set of priorities if they are different. Uh, But actually what if you look at frankly, this is something again the national defense panel did well If you look back over the last four decades Presidents of both political parties haven't fundamentally changed the US role in the world or are enduring national interests because they don't change it's not because we can change how much effort and focus we put into each of these but uh, uh, Typically um, they are enduring we've talked about some of that in this three theater uh, Construct I, I do think so we, we started out our panel discussion earlier talking about uh, how and why we shape and size the military, that we do as one fundamental and, our, and the biggest tool of statecraft, of which we've talked about many others up here today. The two-war construct is absolutely, that's the key difference in this upcoming defense strategy, neither president uh, who will undertake it. The two-war construct, which we've tradi- traditionally used in some capacity or form really since the end of World War II, but technically since the... The late 1980s early 1990s is is ready to be retired one because i think the after 2001 we showed that the emperor had no clothes and we weren't really capable of of fulfilling it fundamentally in, uh, in that regard and then two we've talked about a world with challenges in three theaters so what we're really seeing is a pentagon that needs to confront how it's sized and shaped in terms of what this military looks like and what it's asked to do for its requirements in peacetime and deterrence, and shaping and reassuring, and, and deterring and influencing good and bad alike, as well as when the shooting starts. But what the military does day to day, in, day in and day out fundamentally, it's about keeping the peace. It's not about fighting the wars, typically. Uh, and so I think there is a ripe discussion to be had, and I think it will be had in the next QDR. Do we need to widen the aperture of the traditional force-sizing construct for the U.S. military to include uh, forces for both war and for peace?
0: The gentleman with the uh, reddish tie
3: there. Uh, thank you. I'm a Peter Shutley, retired State Department. It seems that many of the threats
0: facing the U.S. come from weak or failing states or failed states. And yet we're putting our national security budget, high tech stuff, tens of billions modernizing nuclear weapons, buying a B3 at 500 million each. Why not shift some resources in our government to capabilities that will help us address the source of the problem, which is failing states.
2: I'd like to ask Derek
0: if you'd respond to that and then Paula, please.
2: All I can say is amen to that. Uh, (laughs) When Secretary Clinton was uh, in office, she, uh, this is one of her big projects. She was, of course, emphasized on what she called the three Ds, Defense, Diplomacy, and Development, and was determined to uh, support her Pentagon colleagues to maintain a strong defense, but wanted greater emphasis in terms of our policy decisions, but also our resource decisions on diplomacy and development. That's why she launched the Pentagon's own QDR, which Mm -hmm. was a QDDR, uh, and worked alongside Secretary Gates and Panetta, who were terrific, supportive partners in the enterprise of trying to get the State Department and USAID more resources to do the kinds of things uh, that you have have suggested. The challenge, of course, comes in the meat grinder that is our budget process, uh, not just within the executive branch, but particularly with the Hill where there are powerful uh, interests who militate against those kinds of, of resource reallocations. I would hope that, I, I speak to Secretary Clinton certainly, if she were president, will continue uh, this as president and be able to bring the, the extra capacity that a president brings uh, uh, to this fight. I would hope that, uh, that the Republican side would as well, but. but i leave that to Paula to
0: to answer whether that's true. More money for state?
1: Um, uh, I will say that, in fact, during my tenure, by the way, I think the first very successful budget which was upped was during the time of Colin Powell and and, uh, Rich Armitage, and then that was sustained in the second term of the um, Bush administration then. So let me just say that Republicans certainly are very committed to looking at a multi-tiered strategy. I think your point is well taken. I think that it's crucial for the executive branch to have A strategy and when I came into the State Department at that time as Under Secretary I remember that was one of the prioritizations because you can have a strong military but by the way as you point out if you don't other uh, also have other pieces in place um, then you're not going to have sustainability and in that sense you know aid and assistance does matter um, uh, uh, for that uh, particular uh, sustainment of of governance and for the kinds of change that will be brought about by military action, let's say. So I think your point is well taken. I'll end on this note, it struck me, I think when Petraeus was up on the hill uh, testifying, he himself also mentioned this, and I think that's significant from the defense standpoint, about the argument that it's not only about the military components and how we put that together, but how that is backed up by the kind of aid that should be provided to the civilian side of the ledger.
0: Paul, if I might follow up, and you're certainly right about the state budget going up under uh, former Secretary Powell, who also memorably got the State Department off of using Wang, Wang. computers. And <laughs> I remember, actually,
1: by the way, as Arshad says this, I remember sitting actually in that morning meeting when then-Secretary Powell announced that the last Wang was being retired. Yes, yes. <laughs>
0: but the, 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 the second question, though, is that Republicans have, uh, or not all Republicans, have always favored more money for state. And the question I would have for you is in the current environment where you have um, Republican control of both houses and where you have a significant group of Republicans who want to see uh, federal spending diminished, um, do you think that there is broad support in the Republican Party for uh, more money for uh, the striped pants crowd?
1: Uh, In terms of whether there's broad support, I don't know because I don't know if the case has been made effectively. Mm -hmm. And I think the case has to be made effectively. I also think that uh, there needs to be clarity, again, of purpose, of where we're putting our monies, how we're allocating our monies, and towards what end. If you don't have the clear articulation of a strategy, which I mentioned at the outset, then yes, you're gonna question, well, where are my monies going? And how are they being used? So I would submit, I think it's absolutely essential to make that case and to be very compelling with all members of Congress in this case.
0: Do we have any more questions from the audience? The gentleman in the, in the very far back, uh, please. Thank you.
3: Thank you, I'm Ralph Casa from the Pacific Forum, CSIS in Honolulu. Uh, Congratulations. Out where live if we talk about the pivot and the rebalance and the Pacific century Uh, but you haven't talked about East Asia hardly at all other than passing. So a one-word question, China?
0: It's really great to be the moderator. Um, (laughs) China, question mark? Uh,
2: Look, I, I agree. I mean, I think meaning that we should be spending much more of our time and energy on the rebalance. I, so when I served at the Pentagon, I did, covered every region but Asia. And I would have to remind my colleagues who were all agitating for us to do way more in Europe and way more in the Middle East and way more in Africa and, and uh, way more in the Western Hemisphere that, you know, actually our administration policy was to try to execute a rebalance. And when all of the crises pop up, it's very easy to say, well, China's a problem for 30 years from now, let's worry about the problem today. But this is where, this is where you, you make your money in government to, such a, to the extent you do make money in government. It's, it's that you're trying to figure out a way you can execute a long-term strategy uh, while dealing with these short-term problems. There are short-term elements of it. Paula rightly put her finger on the South China Sea, South China sea and showing the Chinese uh, that there is freedom of navigation there and pushing back where we can. But it, it, it's very difficult when you're in government, when you're just so focused on the day-to-day and what's right in front of you, to stay focused and, and uh, uh, determined to execute the long game. And to me, the rebalance is the long game. 30 years from now, that, that clearly, and I think the strategic community agrees on that. It's whether we can maintain the discipline and the focus to maintain the policies to get us there.
0: Mackenzie, do you have any thoughts on, on China?
5: I, I think that the, in the Defense Department specifically, and perhaps anomalous relative to other federal agencies, it, it's, it's um, a private obsession, yeah. so, uh, so it's- <laughs> Semi-private, it's, <laughs> <increasingly> <laughs> you're right. Increasingly lesser, right, yeah. exactly. Uh, so it's at the forefront of defense planning minds, and, and even, I'd argue, all the way after the secretary, most likely, uh, but certainly all the, the joint chiefs, the, the political appointees. The challenge is, of course, the immediate, which is, it's consu- it's, it can be, just as Derek said, it can be all-consuming, and in this case, uh, and particularly these days, it is. And uh, this is not a Pentagon yet that has this, the strategic direction from on high to pursue, I, I think, the short and the long game, and even the short, middle, and the long. Um, so uh, absent that specific guidance, uh, I think we're going to continue to see a muddle through.
3: Yeah,
4: okay. please. Let me just add, add in, in answer to that question. You know, the, the diplomatic elements of the pivot, the rebalance, get very little love. But I think it's worth reminding people that a lot of the initial moves here were not military, they were not economic, they were diplomatic. And to the extent that we can sustain engagement with ASEAN, that we can be working with the Indians, with the Latin Americans, with the Southeast Asians on building an order in East Asia that creates the right incentives for, for, for China, um, we are much more likely to be successful. And that does not present quite the same kind of trade-offs that some of the hard military questions do. And I think. We, uh, we really need to remember that that is a place where the next president should be putting time and attention, the next Secretary of State, and uh, where the entire kind of national security bureaucracy needs to be focusing.
1: I'll also yeah. just add to that, um, uh, that in the case with China, I think you have to look at several different areas. Uh, we've heard the comments about the military, I myself mentioned about the freedom of navigation and the recent action, but there's the economic side, there is also the political side during my tenure as Undersecretary, we had launched a US-China Global Issues Forum. And actually, as you very well know, there's the US-China Strategic Economic Dialogue. And there are many different areas of discourse which are subsumed into that. So you have areas in which we look at cooperation, but also there are areas, let me put forward, because it was in my area of responsibility of looking at areas that also uh, are contentious, separate from the military, areas relevant to human rights, and that were also part of that discussion. Those are just as essential in balancing what our exchanges are with the Chinese.
0: Um, The lady in the white blouse there, please. Do we have a mic? Thank you.
6: I'm Gru from the Norwegian Broadcasting. I guess my question is for Ambassador Dobryansky, primarily, and it's uh, related to the use of forces in Syria. You said you wanted to send forces, ground forces to Syria to strengthen. So my question then is, how do you limit the tasks of the eventual ground forces to fighting ISIS if or when uh, the allies of, uh, of the US on the ground is attacked by Syrian government forces, or other forces, or Russian forces, and how do we ensure that those tasks can be limited in the heat of the struggle, so to speak? Particularly when you have a political track, maybe starting up uh, in a few months, as, w- as was uh, outlined in Vienna on Saturday. Thank you. Uh, and also, how do you, what do you do then with uh, eventual the Coordination with Russia if you are drawn into a larger battle on other fronts that was not intentionally? She,
1: she raises some important questions, but that goes back to my very first points that I began with. And when you asked me, is you have to have a strategy, you have to have definition as to what you're doing and how you're doing it, and how all the pieces fit together versus a kind of ad hocism so i'm not a military strategist Uh, i know that in response to the earlier point derek you said a few things of some of the examples of what could be done but i'd simply say that there has to be a clear definition not a kind of open-endedness also it matters who we're also interacting with. I mentioned to you that such an effort should also be involving the engagement, which already is the case, the Kurdish Peshmerga, also with the uh, Syrian rebel forces, along with the Iraqi security forces. But the bottom line in this, and not to sound too simplistic, but there has to be a definition but, to it versus well, just ad
0: hocism. What is, um, what is that strategy, if I may ask? I mean. I realize you're not a, a military planner, um, and frankly, neither am I, um, mm-hmm. but uh, if you were the national security advisor, what would be the strategy you would advocate for ending the civil war in Syria with the use of additional uh, special forces at it, least that you suggested? A ve-
1: it's, a very, it's a very tough uh, question and it's not just a simple answer that it's that's the silver bullet necessarily in this case but why by the way i use the word strategy just to be clear was i was because the panel is looking towards the next administration i was trying to look at some lessons learned here as one goes forward so in terms of the present on the ground The deck of cards are very difficult ones because of opportunities that had not been seized heretofore. So what do we do? We uh, uh, hype uh, up the number of uh, forces on the ground. We declare the um, um, uh, uh, no-fly zone. We set up safe havens. Uh, We work uh, and strategize with the countries in the region. These are all elements of what one does presently. But again, let me be clear, my comment was forward-looking with an incoming administration. I think that there has to be a lot of mending done in terms of our relationships with many of the countries in the region. Uh, Not only just looking at uh, Israel, but many of the Arab states. That doesn't happen just overnight. You have to have a literally an effort to take the time to engage and re-establish the common interests that we have here. So let me be clear. There isn't a simple answer to this. We're in a very, very difficult situation. But what my appeal was initially is going forward into a new administration, try to look at what are the lessons learned and how you can build upon that and maximize that.
0: Yes, uh, sir, in the the white shirt. Thank you very much, Alexander Kravitz, former diplomat. Thank you for some very insightful and thought provoking uh, remarks. I have not heard any discussion really about Latin America and, for that matter, Africa. And since the title of this panel is Foreign Policy Priorities for the Next Administration, I wonder, does that mean that Latin America and Africa simply are, are not to be priorities? And if that is the wrong conclusion, then what might s- members of the panel suggest as priorities in those regions? Um, Dan,
4: would you like sure. to start Sure. Uh, I don't know. Can we blame the moderator for the, uh, yeah, the focus exactly on the crisis? Right. Yeah, accept the blame <laughs> entirely. I actually okay.
0: thought, should I ask a Latin America question and should I ask an Africa question? And I... Uh, Anyway, I'm delighted, to for the I'm delighted. I'm yeah. delighted that I let I left that jewel for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
4: so, so, thank you for that question. You know, I, I think that the nature of campaign debate and political season debate is to focus on the kinds of crises we we focused on in this panel, and that you know is is probably somewhat inevitable. One of the the things that I think um, provides some cause for optimism, frankly, if you're looking at this from the perspective of an American. Um, Advisor in the next administration is that when you look at regions like Latin America, Africa, when you look at a lot of the rest of Asia outside of China, um, there are rising powers, there are rising democracies that see the world uh, much like we do, that have a very, very strong interest in close partnership with the US across the economic sphere, the diplomatic sphere, politically, people to people, and to the extent that we maintain focus on those relationships, that we build them so that those those countries become um, not just partners of the U.S., but partners in building the kind of world we want and supporting the kind of order we want. We are in a very, very good position going forward. So I think when you broaden the frame a bit, um, as your question did, uh, there, there's a little bit more cause for optimism than we're just ta- than when we just talk about Syria. So I take that point very much.
0: The, uh, the gentleman to the far, <coughs>
3: can you raise your hand
0: again, sir? Great. Yes.
3: Um, I beg to differ with you uh, when it comes to Africa. Uh, the the leadership there really have disappointed the citizens for quite a long time. As you know, it's part of the failed state problem. And therefore, if we don't take lessons from the Middle East and quickly go into Africa and make sure the leaders are meeting the needs of the people, we may in the next 10, 15 years or so see some uprising that may not be quite uh, as uh, as calm as they were, say, in Tunisia and, and Egypt. You look at Nigeria, you have the Boko Haram, and you have people actually uh, running away from the northeast of Nigeria to, uh, uh, to Europe and really risk crossing the Sahara Desert. So it's important that you, you talk about it, you have advise uh, the incoming president or whomever uh, as to... How do you set up the, uh, uh, what are the steps to engage leadership and to make sure that they really meet the needs of the people. That should be our interest first before uh, using drones to drop bombs on, on people while they're sleeping. Well, could Paul, could you address that? How do
0: you, how would you advise the next President to um, engage the leadership of Africa to uh, better meet the needs of their people?
1: Well, I'll look at a case from the past that really stands out in my mind uh, with uh, George W. Bush, where he felt very firmly about the investment in the people of Africa, particularly in the health area, in the provision of nets against malaria, and also in dealing with HIV AIDS. And that goes back to the point that the gentleman from the, previously from the State Department mentioned, and the kinds of investments that you make in countries that can have really uh, a, 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 such an impact on communities and on people where they identify that aid. So I do believe that actually those investments, he's quite right, those investments matter. And what we do in Africa in that case uh, uh, has really, I think whether it's access to water, whether it's you know dealing with environmental degradation, dealing with migration issues, dealing with health issues, those kinds of investments do make a difference. By the way, forgive me. Please. I'm going to come back one footnote for the Norway question, which I didn't say and I want to say, is the person who's sitting right there. She's, I think, typing something at the moment. She's but also a is the So we'll <laughs> is the also I uh, removal of Assad. I wanted to say that uh, in my reference because you mentioned a political se- settlement, and Assad, um, uh, Bashir Assad has been a definitively a uh, lightning rod and a a problematic, to say the least, uh, in terms of the conflict uh, and what's happening on the ground. And that has to be also an important part of
0: this. We're we're now at the very end, and I'm sorry, I see a bunch of your hands going up. We have time, I think, for two more questions. So I'm gonna go to the lady over there, and then immediately to the gentleman here in the white shirt. Um, if you would ask your questions one after another, and then we'll wrap up.
6: Uh, thank you. Victoria Feinberg, uh, please address your recommendations about cybersecurity and cyber cooperation.
0: So cybersecurity and cyber cooperation, sir.
6: Herbert Regenbogen. If the Middle East consists of tribes, and history has taught that they've been contained through authoritarian Leaders, which we, of course, in part have annihilated. How do we come to the conclusion that these tribes can build an identity in a nation state? Um.
0: Not sure, who I should throw this to, but I, perhaps I'll throw it to all four of them. Derek, why Well, don't I you? mean,
2: first on cyber, and I'm not sure if you're referring to a specific country or just generally the issue of cyber. Uh, it's been a priority for the current administration, it was a priority for the Bush administration. I'm sure, certain it will be a priority uh, for the next administration by, by the Republican Democrat. There are certain structural things we were doing on our side. We created a cyber command with the Pentagon. Uh, we've engaged in a cyber dialogue with the Chinese. It uh, hasn't worked out quite the way we wanted, but there's across all of the uh, platforms in which we operate, cyber is going to be a priority issue for the next administration. It's an issue that the government alone can't handle. It's something where we're going to have to work very closely with our private sector. Um, and I think, uh, as, as I think probably many of us on this panel have been victims of, of cyber attack in the sense of our... SF-186s are in the hands of, of uh, someone else, um, that this is going to be a reality for the future that we're all gonna have to deal with. Uh, it's not a precise answer, but I just expect it to be a, a high priority. On this question of how we deal with the difficult tapestry of the Middle East, I think there's no question, it's infused all of our, all of our comments here, that there, there has to be a political solution. There are military tools, uh, there's economic tools, there's development tools, Um, I try to be optimistic, I mean, we've we've had examples in the Middle East in the past in which we've been able to keep parts of that tapestry together. I think we probably, when we think of the future of Syria, Iraq, uh, down the road, we, you know, have to look very hard at questions of uh, territoriality, of political identity. Uh, I personally think we're at the right posture now in terms of our answers to those questions, but, it's something we're gonna to have to hold open as this continues to evolve. It opens up many more complicated uh, issues, as you, know, as you well know, uh, when we think about the future of the Kurds, for example, and, and the tensions that would arise uh, with Kurdish independence. But I think we, act, we have to remain open-minded about it as we move forward, because we're not gonna see a lasting solution uh, in our lifetimes without some sort of political reconciliation in the region. Mackenzie, would you like, can you address the cyber
0: issue?
5: Cyber. Oh. Jeez. it's the it's the perennial problem. Meaning, it it's been a part of the American economy and our way of life for basically 15 years and 20. And the policy debate and the legal debate and the who should do what discussion in terms of the federal government within the government, of course, and between and among the private sector. We there's still 20 years in the past in many cases, and so. I, the sort of the big picture cyber policy and it's not the solution but you, you can't solve it just like all of our many other problems we've outlined here without one more clear discussion of you know offensive versus defensive you know who's in charge of what the role of private companies and how actually responsible they are as the owners of critical infrastructure the vast majority in this nation when there is often a shareholder conflict of interest in in that for many public companies Uh, I'm not entirely pessimistic. I think we're stronger than we think in terms of, you know, grid resilience and other types of things that could cause calamity or cyber Pearl Harbor. But we have trouble assessing what the OPM hack was. Was it theft? Was it an act of vandalism? Was it an act of war? If we can't even get those fundamentals 20 years later, uh, I really think we're we're so far behind the, the eight ball that it will eventually cause much more damage beyond the theft of, of banking and other data, and not to mention the security aspect of cyber. So we've already seen wars start and finish in lightning speed, if you call it that, where Russia basically blinded Estonia for in a, a, less than a week, and basically shut down the government's ability to ask for help from the US and others. By the time we woke up and said there's a problem, it was over, and, and we did nothing. So. We also have to confront the question of cyber policy, strategic cyber policy in the international realm as well. So we're, we're behind in both, and there's a lot of work to be done.
0: We're at the end of our time. I'd like to say three things. Um, first, I'd like to thank our panelists for taking all the questions. Second, thank you all, and thank you CSIS for giving them this platform. Thank you all for your excellent questions and attentive listening. Finally, I'd like to thank CSI's for ensuring that we would all be off the stage before Henry Kissinger gets on the stage. (laughs) Thank you all.